Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Marshall Brain, who is the founder of HowStuffWorks.com and was the host of the National Geographic Channel's Factory Floor with Marshall Brain, a series of one-hour factory tours taking the viewer on a journey into the world of product design, engineering, and manufacturing. He is the author of more than two dozen books and has been a guest on everything from CNN and Good Morning America to The Oprah Winfrey Show. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm honored to be here. This is this is going to be a fun night. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your storied background? It sounds like you've got an interesting past. <laughs> well, <laughs> we you know we could say it all started with a sperm, right? If right. we go all the way back. Well, the Big Bang uh, as well, per- perhaps <laughs> truncated a bit. Like, let's start with twenty or so, and then move forward. Uh, yeah. Um, I uh, would. What I would be what's described as a serial entrepreneur, which means I've started multiple companies, not at the level of Elon Musk. Right. So there are multiple levels of seriality. He sets the standard, the Elon standard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will say I am a, a big fan of Elon Musk, not a rabid fan, or anything, but I, I really admire, uh, you know, like this this past week, the tunnel system, the the seed tunnel system in Las Vegas opened. And you just got to give the guy credit for being able to execute, you know, right. to move ideas forward and get them done. There, There's a, a, a lot to be said. And it, there, it's getting all kinds of criticism and, you know, the normal hater stuff. Sure. But it got done. Right. I mean, think about that. It only took two years and there's actual tunnels with cars driving in them. And, and that ability to execute, um, you know, the day that the two boosters on the side of the Falcon Heavy landed in unison oh, yeah. on their pads, that, that is so yeah. amazing. Right. It's just. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I am not, not at Elon Musk's level, but I did start How Stuff Works, and that did, you know, pretty well and, and sold the Discovery Channel for $250 million. So, um, so there is that, and I've started a couple other uh, companies that haven't reached that high. Right. And I do write a lot of books. I love writing, and I've created some websites, and enjoy doing that. And I get to be—I'm a professor at NC State, the university, and so I get to uh, teach entrepreneurship there, which means. I work with students all the time and they tend to be high energy and not yet cynical. Right. Is awesome. <laughs> like, you know, like they're still, uh, they, they have hope to, for the future. <laughs> exactly. Well, yes. And uh, as long as they, I mean, they're the, the college age people in America have good reason to be concerned about the future, uh, as well. So, but on the entrepreneurial side, they, it's just, it's fun. That's the, that's the best word to describe it because they are energetic and they do have a lot of ideas and they are willing to work at them. And it's a great, a great gig. So let's, uh, let's, so you, you have a, a lot of work that's gone into describing how things work. So we would really like to pick your brain as to how quantum computers work. <laughs> see, see, okay. Tom, see, Thomas and I are thinking about opening up a quantum computing startup accelerator, and I was actually going to take the entrepreneur angle into bringing that up, and instead he took <laughs> he took the how stuff works angle into bringing that up. So, answer his question. I want to circle back around to talking about entrepreneurship because we will ideally be mentoring entrepreneurs very soon. So, answer Thomas's oh. and we'll come back to it. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Okay, so first, let's set a baseline. 
I have worked on a lot of uh, explanatory material on how stuff or how things work and what that has taught me. And, and we're talking like more than a decade of my professional career spent solely in that endeavor. I've written books. I've done the website. I've done TV shows. I, we had a magazine. I, it's expressed itself in multiple ways. And what I've learned from that is how amazingly little I actually know. <laughs> I, because you pick anything. You pick any topic. And there are people who've devoted their whole lives to this little tiny slice of our world. Right. Like the people who made those boosters land simultaneously. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and it wasn't just one person, right? It's a team of people who came together and made yeah. the hardware and the software and the physics and all of that work. And, you know, I can describe it, but I don't know a, a millionth of what, they together all know and right. and they brought it to reality. So uh, I'm the world's leading expert in how, you know, in knowing how little I know. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's something to add to your, your list of plaudits. <laughs> I, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard of that experiment where they go around and they ask people how a toilet works and everybody's like, yeah, of course I know how a toilet works. Or they ask them, do they know how a toilet works? And everybody's like, yeah, of course you, you push the little thing down on the water flushes. And then they say, okay, well diagram it, draw one or describe oh, it mechanistically. Oh, yeah. And everyone immediately freezes, right? That there's so much of the built world that we take for granted. And, and in 2016, I did what, uh, what I call the STEM punk project, which was this like year long endeavor to learn about computing mechanics, electronics, and artificial intelligence. And I like designed my own curriculum. Oh. And then I, executed it and wrote a book about it. And the final chapter is just about how it's it's taught me to see the, the grandeur and, and the intricacy of everything that's around us. Like every sign you see, every fence you see, everything everywhere had to be built by somebody. Somebody had to build the machine. Somebody had to troubleshoot it. And somebody, you know, some, some brilliant chemist is out there thinking about how to design a new waterproof paint to, to paint those giant letters on the sides of shipping containers, right? Somebody who's probably smarter than any of us is that's their whole life. And it's just amazing how much goes into keeping the world running. Oh yeah. There's a famous expose or I don't know what, uh, you know, essay on how hard or how amazing, depending on how you want to look at it, it is to make a pencil. Right, I pencil by Leonard Reed. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, there is the technologies and stuff, but there's also just the cooperative nature of the economy. Right. That, like, humans across the whole globe are cooperating, right. amazingly, to make it possible for a pencil to be manufactured and then shipped and then sold. And then the Suez Canal comes along and shows us that it doesn't always work. You know what messes it all up, though? Party can get a giant boat in the middle of it. That, that's the economy's one weakness. It is. That and tyrannical states. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because the... Because, <laughs> you know, the lumberjacks or the miners or the people who, the, the rubber, yeah. whatever, extractors, like, th they don't know anything about where the end products are going, and they, and they don't particularly care. They produce it. There's a price <laughs> that, that comes out of the, the aggregate preferences of all the people in the economy and their, their time preferences, and then that price is able to coordinate all the different interlocking mechanisms of the economy. It's, it's truly remarkable. It is. The, the fact that capitalism works... Is amazing. Uh, it is, and it's... You know, you can be as down as you want on humanity, but there's a huge amount of cooperation that we don't really give credit to right. that makes all of that happen. It, you know, everybody's willingly participating at right. some point in that, you know, that mechanism, or I don't even know what to call it, but this system. Right. And it's not always perfect, and it's not always fair. And, it, you know, it can be improved if we would give it, you know, some thought, but it at some level works. And, uh, and here we are talking, I just can't even believe this. Right. The three of us are having a free video right. call together. How, how is that possible? And yet we take it all for granted. T technology, Marshall. That's how technology. <laughs>
<laughs> a million things came together for the three of us to be able to look at each other's faces right. on the screen right it's now. It's a shame we're not all better looking. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. But there'll be a filter soon, right? That's true. AI yeah, will yeah. come in and it'll make us look fabulous. Give me the Ryan Goslings or the, or the John Cena. So that, that's, who, that's who you see in my avatar. Exactly. Um, but I, I think I think we uh, we were talking about quantum computing. So how do, how do you feel about... <laughs> about that application that technology it's it's near term commercial implications it it has a little bit of the feeling of graphene yeah. right like graphene has been going to change the world since the 90s maybe i forget when graphene was popularized you know it was discovered and then it was popularized and then it was going to absolutely change everything and it it's getting you know it's but it's and quantum computers are kind of like that they're they're out there we hear about them there's a ton of potential but there's also some niggly problems over here and no one it's still waiting for the thing what's it called what what was excel called the killer app Yes, thank you. That's exactly what you read my mind. That's exactly what it was called. We need the killer, the thing that just makes quantum computing or graphene or, you know, how long is there going to be a blood test for cancer? I've been reading about that since I was a teenager. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah well, they, they gave out the Nobel Prize for gra graphene in 94, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, they, they asked the guy that got the Nobel Prize, why isn't it you didn't get, uh, get the patent on graphene? And uh, he made up some excuse, but the reality was it had already been patented by this uh, researcher in Akron, Ohio, who patented it two years before. But the people doing the Nobel Prize never bothered to look at who actually had the patent because he's the one that actually deserved the Nobel Prize. It's really a massive screw up on the Nobel Prize committee. So, wow. uh, oh. interesting backstory on that whole thing. So, oh, that, that's tragic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But yeah. 94 or 92, depending on where you want to set the bar. It's been around for a long time, and, and we're still waiting for the killer app of graphene. You know, one thing that I would say that sort of differentiates quantum computing from graphene, although I take your point with that example, is that with quantum computing, it's often possible to run or to design, you know, single 8-qubit, 10-qubit, 12-qubit circuits to solve specific problems in an otherwise completely classical pipeline. And so I would actually say you don't need a killer app for it. What you need is like a 1,000... Uh, you know, sublethal apps that, that <laughs> add value at different points in the economy. Uh, you you oh, don't yeah. need a full-throated quantum computer with a million qubits to handle portfolio optimization or risk analytics or to do drug discovery or, or things like that. I mean, OTI Lumionics is a company I was reading about recently that, it, that has... Uh, a quantum computer just doing one single part. It's like a single algorithm doing a single part of an enormously complicated materials discovery uh, workflow. And it's nevertheless sped the process up quite a lot. If, if you can just selectively inject quantum computing into the computational bottlenecks where it's appropriate, then you can unlock nice. a huge amount of value, billions of dollars of value, without having a quantum Facebook or quantum internet or a quantum whatever <laughs> the hell, um, without any of those things. So yeah, it's Thomas and I have been thinking and talking a lot about this, given what we hope to do in the, in the next year. Nice. I have heard uh, and about that configuring to solve slices like you're talking right. about and that uh but i had not heard of a really good example like you're mentioning right and i'm not sure i completely comprehend what they're you know what they're able to land on but i do hear what you're saying about the slice approach and yeah. maybe that's it like maybe that's what we get to well, I think that's going to drive a lot of the economic development in quantum computing. The startups that come through, hopefully, our program will be aimed at doing things just like that. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, the, the killer app will likely be breaking encryption, but um, oh, yeah. uh, 
Um, and it'll be that's what we need. Oh, yeah, man. it'll be be the arms race between the U.S. and China or Russia, or, um, and so that just kind of raises the stakes a little bit more. But so, but you know the, the the common joke is is that once we get a good quantum computer that works, that all of the cryptocurrencies that are left to be mined can be mined in one afternoon. <laughs> And <laughs> think of the power we'll save. Yeah, yeah no kidding. So that, that'll pay for our accelerator just right there. I mean, our Bitcoin billions. Pay. Yeah, <laughs> that's our exit strategy. That is an outstanding exit strategy. Wow, I've heard of some, but that's powerful. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you about entrepreneurship because, like I mentioned, we might be mentoring entrepreneurship uh, or, or okay. we might be mentoring people in entrepreneurship. And also we need to be on the lookout for good ideas or, th or things that uh, red flags, people who don't have the conviction they're trying to project, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I know you teach it. You, you've been an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. What are some lessons that you took from all of that, that that you might want to impart, both to us as entrepreneurs, but people who will be coaching them as well? Okay, I would say the first thing is to understand that at the bottom, it, you know, it, entrepreneurship can be quite complicated and onerous because there's so many hats you have to be wearing, especially at the beginning when you're small. But if you can remember this one thing, in my opinion, it's the, it's the most important thing, and that is you are seeking resonance in an idea. So in our economy, like the United States has a roughly $20 trillion economy right now, right? And it maybe COVID knocked it down a little bit, but it's, it's in round number, $20 trillion, enormous economy, money flowing in massive volumes all the time. So into that economy, you can inject any idea for any product or any service, as long as it's legal, and the economy, meaning the people with dollars are going to react to your idea. And if they like it, then money flows your way. Almost uh, impossible to stop kind of money flows your way. And, and the thing that gates how much success you're going to have is how much that idea resonates with people. And it could be like word of mouth resonance is the purest form. And if you look at the biggest companies today, like Facebook and Amazon and eBay and, you know, these big face uh, Instagram, same with like these huge companies, they all started tiny, just a couple people and they resonated for whatever reason. So you go look up the history of Facebook or Amazon or YouTube or Google or any of them on, on Wikipedia, there's always a history section. Right. And they all, wow, we put it up. And in the first month we had 80,000 visitors or, you know, it's always something like that. There's something about it that resonates with people. So, so yeah. is, that what you, is that what you teach then is how to create this reality distortion field? <laughs> that yeah. is a valid thing but there is that works with investors okay like the reality distortion field which i think steve jobs is the the king like if you yeah. were to rank people he was the greatest distortion field generator of them right. all uh <laughs> that is that you need with investors but there there's almost no way to predict what will resonate with the public necessarily. Okay. Uh, I mean, the thing that lets you know is to put it in the marketplace and see how the public reacts. Because sometimes even something that seems obvious uh, doesn't resonate. And we see that happen periodically with a film where you know, $100 million has been poured into this film presumably by experts, right? Right. Not, you know, not by people who've never done it. I mean, by a, a lot of people, hundreds of people and a hundred million or $200 million goes into a movie and then it bombs, you know, because it doesn't resonate. People right. don't like it. They don't tell their friends about it and it just doesn't go anywhere. And that, uh, 
Well, and the opposite, I don't know if I had kids when silly bands were popular. I don't know if you remember silly bands, but they were rubber bands in the shape of an animal or a guitar or, you know, whatever. And you wore them on your wrist. And it just so happened that my kids were in middle school when silly bands exploded. They were so resonant to the point where schools had to ban them because kids were fighting over them. And it was insanity. (laughs) The parents didn't like them. The kids liked them. And, and they were selling five silly bands, which cost like a penny each to make for $3. And if you look at the history of that, the guy is like, he's putting ads in the paper that say, I don't care who you are, what your prison record is. I don't care. I just need your warm body to show up at this location now to put silly bands in boxes and tape them shut and put mailing labels on them because wow. we can't ship them fast enough. And, uh, and so why did that resonate? Who would have predicted that that would resonate? And and yet it it resonated like crazy for about a year. Do you and have, then it died. Do you have any thoughts on the storytelling aspect of that. So I, I, I buy that it's, I buy that it's very difficult to predict what the public will be interested in, of of course, but surely some thought has gone into how to engineer that resonance. Well, um, well, apparently not. Um, (laughs) Let me stop. This is the first time Marshall is thinking about this. (laughs) No, it's just there. You can look like, for example, the three of us could say to ourselves today, let's start a pizza chain. And we could probably figure out if we put our minds to it, something new in the world of pizza chains and we could get it to resonate at some level. Now, if we look at Papa John's as an example, Papa John's resonated. I mean, did it have to do with the banana pepper that they included with every pizza? Is that what made it resonate? Is it because they ran massive ad campaigns that happened to, you know, hook people and get them like, but the three of us could come up with a new concept around pizza and we could probably get some level of resonance to it. But the thing that we don't know is would it resonate like Papa John's clearly resonated. Right. And there's a hundred examples of pizza companies that didn't make it. So it, there is a little bit of nuance or luck or, you know, or iteration, so, just trying different yeah, things. Yeah, something mistakes. exactly going into that. That uh, that's inex. It, that's art. That's inexplicable human nature. I don't know how to say it, but if you can figure out uh, something, and you brought up a good point with iteration, like you, the first thing you put out there, it might not resonate. Like Airbnb is a perfect example of that. Or Pinterest, which was an overnight success that took 12 years. Right. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it sometimes it takes, Airbnb practically went out of business before it figured out the recipe that worked for it. And, and it's to some degree, the public had to catch up. Uh, I don't know if you remember back in 2001-ish, there was a company called Webvan that (laughs) took in like a billion dollars of venture capital, an enormous amount. And they were going to build out all these warehouses and vans, obviously, and they were going to deliver stuff to people's homes, (laughs) which is exactly what Amazon does today. But in 2001, we weren't ready for it. Like, there just was no precedent there was no you know pathway toward it it was they just wanted us to go from we've always been buying stuff in stores for a thousand years and boom we're going to buy everything off the internet and and humanity couldn't make that jump it's a quantum leap, if you will, yeah. yeah whereas amazon took it as a ramp they said okay we're going to start with books let's get that to work okay now books are working now let's add another thing and now it's, and then, you know, they incrementally grew into, they are web van. Yeah. 
you know, if we looked at the the PowerPoint presentation that raised Webvan a billion dollars, it is Amazon Prime. <laughs> but they were twenty years too early. Okay. What um, what are some major pitfalls you see entrepreneurs starting out and falling into? I would say number one not having a good value proposition that again resonates with people so you're you're inventing your thing you're solving some problem and now you're going to put it out to the public and it needs to have a value proposition that people can uh, wrap their arms around that makes sense that has a good return on investment for the user, whatever it is. So an example of a company that had a great value proposition was Groupon. Uh, Groupon, super resonant. One of the most resonant companies ever created. And their value proposition was, if you give me $10, I'll give you $20. That, I mean, <laughs> that was approximately their and that thing, bam, it took off like a rocket because who's not going to do that? Right. You know, especially when it was brand new and we weren't used to it. Uh, that was a great value proposition. Napster, I don't know if you remember Napster, but that was the music, the first music sharing thing. Napster's value proposition is come to Napster and download music for free. <laughs> now, that later turned out to be illegal. Right. But at the moment of inception, that was the most resonant thing that had ever been created at that time because that's a fantastic value proposition. Right. Uh, yeah, let's go steal music together. Yeah. It is uh slightly illegal. But yeah. <laughs> uh so not having your value proposition nailed down and not having it in a form that you can explain to someone in a few words, you know, the, the, the flippant statement is you should be able to explain this to your grandmother, you know, in one sentence, here's my value proposition. In the elevator. Uh, right. That is better <laughs> if you put them in the elevator. <laughs> and, and if you can't explain it simply like that, that doesn't mean it's doomed to failure because, for example, the value proposition with quantum computers that you brought up a few minutes ago, grandma, <laughs> I mean, she just doesn't know what a quantum computer is, probably never will know. I'm not sure I know what a quantum right. computer is completely. I don't know that anybody does. But uh, but that is a very niche specialty thing. So it. It's not always true that the value proposition uh, needs to fit into grandma's brain, but it, somebody needs to be able to listen to the sentence you say and think, oh, damn, I need that. And that is one thing that a lot of people haven't figured out yet. Uh, another thing often is uh, pricing. So you, I, I just watched a thing yesterday where uh, the company is making a, a jacket in, in round numbers. They're making a jacket and it costs them, uh, I'm just going to use random numbers. It costs them $100 to make it and they're selling it for $150. And they present this to investors you know, it's sort of like a shark tank kind of environment. And the right. investors are like, well, if you're making it for $100, you can't sell it for $150 because like the math, the economics of that just don't work. You have to sell a $100 thing for $400, not, you know, yeah. not $100 or $150 because you have to go through retailers and you have to warehouse it and you have to, you know, handle returns. And there's all this other stuff that you haven't baked into your price. And maybe no one's going to buy it at $400. They might buy it at 150 But when yeah. you actually bake everything in that they hadn't thought about. So that's a level of inexperience that an entrepreneur may not understand. 
That's pretty uh, interesting. Then, we, we just had Elaine Pofelt on, and she wrote a book called The One Person Million Dollar Business. And she discusses how people are able to overcome some of that overhead that you're describing, the warehousing and the retailers and stuff by using, you know, just technology, Instagram or Facebook or whatever to sell nice. directly. So, I mean, you could theoretically make a $100 jacket, sell it for $150. And if you've removed all of that friction in the process, it suddenly becomes economical. Probably not a physical product. I mean, if you're doing it with a digital one, it's much easier. Well, it is, it is certainly much easier. Yeah, physical products have lots of... Oh, decay and they wear out. Those and pesky they have atoms, yeah. Stupid, stupid yeah. atoms. Yes, you have to move yeah. them and store them. That's why we use cubits. <laughs> we just chill everything. It's real cold, stays right where it's supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then do you need investors or not? If you can, if there's any way you can do it without investors, then that would be preferable. But a lot of stuff, especially a physical stuff, you can't do it without investors. So then if you're going to use investors, you have to know you have to know how to approach them, what they're thinking, how they think, what they're looking for, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that uh, is non-trivial. Let's just say you you are you do not want to learn that by you know by the run into the brick wall method you want to actually <laughs> have someone who knows how to talk to investors in your team who who can streamline that whole process if you need to work with investors you can't i i, I shouldn't say can't but it is rare for a normal inexperienced person to walk into a venture capital firm and get someone to invest in them because there's just, you have to know what's happening. You, you, can't, you can't use the, the wimpy method of, uh, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there are rare people who yeah. walk in and, and very charismatic people. Right. Like the guy who started Juicero was one of these people. I believe his name was Doug Evans, if I'm right. He raised a hundred million dollars from one of the, you know, from a group of the most experienced investors in Silicon Valley, because he somehow mesmerized them. Like he was so charismatic and so convincing that it's almost like he was a snake charmer. I mean, it's really interesting to go look up that story, especially since Juicero went down in absolute flames. It just was an abject failure. But he, that person was outstanding at the talk to investors and get them to pour money into his thing. He was legendary. So there, you know, but that's the kind of person you need to have on your team and most of us aren't that kind of person. Yeah. Uh, I've been getting by on my looks for most of my <laughs> life. So. <laughs> so, so Marshall, what is this next big project that you have in your head waiting to happen? Well, I finished the, the project I most recently finished was this book called the doomsday book. Sounds fun. Which, uh, well, which owes, uh, uh, so the debt of gratitude to y'all, uh, actually, but, um, you know, in, in part of it, but that project is both exhilarating because it really was interesting to look, it looks at 25 existential threats that humanity faces and, you know, and, and analyzes them and talks about solutions. And it's fascinating that right now Bill Gates is promoting a book that is in that same genre, but he's just focused on climate change. As so, his, so I'm, I'm curious as to how you go out and you just released this doomsday book. You go out and celebrate, you have party <laughs> hats on. Uh, That's the flip side of it. <laughs> it's terrifying. It, like, especially uh, climate change, because what we call climate change 
is actually like eight existential threats all locked together and all derived from too much carbon in the atmosphere. And, and it's, this is going way back to the beginning. A lot of college students are aware of this uh, impending crisis. And, and if humanity was rational, we would be doing like a war level effort to undo the damage we've done in the hopes that it doesn't just completely spiral out of our control. But we aren't doing that. And that's, I think, the part that's terrifying. Yeah, my, my argument with climate change is not that it's not happening or anything. It's that the term does not imply any action. Climate change does not tell me what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't give me any orders. It doesn't, uh, there's nothing implied. Now, if we're talking about pollution, I, I really know what to do about it, but climate change, uh, it's it's not understood what the average person should do other than walk around and be afraid. It That is part of the terror. Now, in, in the line of thinking that you're suggesting, Scientific American came out yesterday and said, we're not going to call it climate change anymore. We're going to call it the climate emergency to try to raise the level of panic or alarm or consciousness about what's coming. But you're right. The average human doesn't like there. There isn't anything that a single person can do to stop it. It has to happen pretty much at the world level. Humanity, and specifically humanity's leaders, would need to come together and say, "Okay, this is a an emergency, and we are going to now." invest the kind of money we invested into world war ii or into the apollo missions or you know some massive amount of effort and we're gonna do these 100 things together like in unison and yeah. we're gonna turn back the the threat and that is almost impossible I to wish imagine you the best happening. of luck with that yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> it, I, it, it is so hard to imagine humanity pu pulling together like that and making a stand like that and investing the money together that, you know, that China and Russia and America and India and, you know, and we're all going to say, let me just give you a simple example. If we all got together today and we all said we aren't going to burn fossil fuel gasoline anymore. We're going to invent a synthetic gasoline that's carbon neutral that we manufacture with solar power out of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and water. Let's say we said that. And we aren't going to burn fossil fuel gasoline anywhere on the planet ever again after we invent this magic synthetic gasoline and we invested all the money necessary, then we could, you know, we could use the existing infrastructure and the existing vehicles because it's going to take decades to convert everything over to electric. That would let us stop burning gasoline. Then we would do that with natural gas. Then we would do it with diesel fuel and, and jet fuel. And, and, and let's say we did a timeline of, in five years, no more fossil fuel gasoline. And we invested the money to make that happen. That's imaginable, but it's not likely to what do, happen. What do you think that would take? Because I can't imagine it. I, I don't even know a plausible set of steps that you could take to enact something like that, even even were you dictator of the entire earth. I mean, what, like... Oh, <laughs> Which one of us is going to be the dictator? Of, if if we were, let's say that, that we are the triumvirate yeah. and the three of us are, dict, you know, the dictating committee of the entire earth, there are already technologies that exist at a small scale. So, for example, the Navy knows how to make jet fuel out of the carbon dioxide in seawater. So they pull the carbon dioxide out of the seawater and they 
apply a lot of electricity from the nuclear reactor on an aircraft carrier, and they can make artificial jet fuel. And there's a company in Canada that's doing this. So there is a technology that knows how to do this, or we could do it out of algae. Algae creates fat, fat can be turned into diesel fuel, and that, you know, that all exists. It's not even hard. But we, if, we, if we, the triumvirate, could just ban fossil fuel gasoline and we invested the money to spin up seawater, jet fuel, and methane, you know, made synthetically, and algae diesel fuel, it, like, and we just mandated that, then we would just have to scale it up in, in the same way that during World War II, we scaled up nuclear material manufacturing. I look at the Manhattan Project, or we scaled up airplane manufacturing, or we scaled up you know, the training of soldiers or whatever, the logistic chain. We humans could do this, but it would have to be happening at, at an extremely intense and high level where the political will is there. And, and like, if you look at the United States, when did Biden get, he got inaugurated in January. Prior to January, the ruling class in the United States was like, we don't even believe climate change is happening. How do you, <laughs> you know, how are you gonna change things when that was the mentality? And and he nearly got reelected. I, I like that's what that's the part that's hard is that there's a tens of millions of people just in this country who don't even believe that climate change is real. And so, so do you do you think that space-based power stations have a good opportunity for uh, working? I think that in the situation we're in, almost anything that could help should be explored. Like we should, we should open up a flow of money so that science can creatively explore a thousand options. So like right now, Singapore is deploying gigantic floating solar arrays, okay? Is that the solution? No. Is it a solution? Yes, in a place like Singapore. We can't do it off the Atlantic coast of the United States because a hurricane would come along and wreck it, right? It's not the solution here. But, like, I don't know what the economics of taking a SpaceX rocket and launching giant orbiting solar arrays and then beaming down the energy. I don't know what the economics of that are. Maybe there are better things to pursue, wind energy, solar, nuclear, you know, on the planet. But we, like, we should be spending money like drunken sailors trying to find the set of answers that's going to solve this, not in 2050, because it's going to be too late. It, you know, now, there, uh, there's a group of scientists last week who said, we should be off of like all electricity in the entire world should be generated with renewables by 2030. That's the kind of thinking that ought to be happening. But those scientists don't have any levers to pull to make it happen. The only lever right now is the economics of it, and that's not a powerful enough lever at this moment. It's just not compelling enough, and it needs something like a triumvirate dictatorship or <laughs> total unification of world leadership or, you know, so, somebody to invent something that produces electricity essentially for free so we all convert over to that instantly or something. Something has to happen. Or we're 
we're just going to go down the path we're on right now where more and more carbon is in the atmosphere. I think we were at 420 parts per million last week, which is disastrous. And it just grows. You know, it, it's not like we're weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels. We're growing our fossil fuel consumption inexplicably. That's the terrifying thing. So the, what you're describing is sort of a classic coordination problem. And I've recently on Twitter seen the emergence of people who are thinking about coordination studies, which combines you know psychology and game theory and economics to align incentives in a way that people can tackle problems that are well beyond the scale of any one individual. So do you have any thoughts as to how to unite people around that? Because I, I, for one, am, am pretty... Uh, wary of global tyrannies that uh, <laughs> you don't like how, how, how however benign their motives may be i just tend not to like that as a solution so how do we get people to freely choose to engage in this behavior that that would benefit us all okay there there are a couple of examples where humans have come together in mass and invested enormous sums of money to solve problems. And the two best ones that we're all familiar with are the let's put a man on the moon mm -hmm. thing uh, and the let's uh, win World War II thing. The let, So let's look at the moon thing because it's more recent. And uh, there was no existential threat, right? If we didn't land on the moon, nothing was going to happen you know, there was going to be mass destruction or like, so why did Americans come together around that idea and invest an amount of money that would be unimaginable today? Like, I don't know what they invested in, in 1965 dollars, but my father worked on the Apollo mission. He worked on the lunar lander at McDonnell Douglas in Huntington Beach, California, when I was a kid, along with all of, you know, the people in our neighborhood, there were 400,000 engineers <laughs> to get three guys to walk on the moon. Like, and they invented all of it. None of that technology existed in 1960, and we were walking on the moon in 1969. How did we get the, like, somehow... Americans aligned themselves and got excited about the idea of this. And Congress invested in, in like basically a free flowing river of money. And we hired this enormous group of engineers and scientists and we invented all of the technology in nine years. And we did it. Uh, like, so. Now, go back to your sentence at the beginning of this little piece. How did we get the politicians and the financiers and the population and the media of America to all align on that rather peculiar goal? We had a common enemy in both cases. Yeah. Nice. R Russia and, and the Nazis. Okay. And Sputnik. Right. right. So, so we knew that a Russian satellite was flying over the United States. And I, I suspect in 1960 that that didn't make people in America feel too good. Right. It was terrifying. Right. You're correct. So how then, if we're going to apply that to climate change, we would somehow have to make the reality of climate change so terrifying if that theory is correct, we would have to make it so terrifying that everybody agrees that we have to eliminate this terrifying thing. Yeah, I, and, I, I worry that, that climate change is, it's just so, it's so diffuse and you just don't feel the gradual warming in a way that, that impacts you as forcefully yeah. as does, you know, propaganda coming out during wartime about the Huns and all the terrible things they're going to do if they win the war. Nice. That's a good point. It, you're right. It's the boil the frog problem. Right. <laughs> We're literally going to boil the frog. But we would have to figure out 
like we occasionally see incidents that do terrify us. Mm -hmm. Like in 2019, it was all of the rainforest was on fire for, you know, and it made for really graphic images and everybody could understand that we don't want to light the rainforest on fire. And then there were the wildfires in California, which were pretty photogenic. And then there was the whole thing in Australia with their wildfires. So there are moments, but you're right that, uh, well, there's a bunch of people in America who would say, well, that's not climate change. That's just normal wildfires. Uh, but somehow, I mean, if we're sitting here thinking about the problem, we somehow have to make the the melting of the West Antarctica ice sheets terrifying to people because the, those are a near-term catastrophe waiting to happen. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the in the book about that one scenario. The the West the West ice sheets of Antarctica are already starting to move more quickly. And we know they're going to collapse if we don't do something. And then the sea level is going to rise 10 meters. But is, isn't it true that um, uh, every time we've had a crisis, there's always detractors. There's always people that, that uh, don't believe it or they're the show me people. And so so is is this really any different? And it doesn't really doesn't really help to blame the people that don't buy into it. It's more a matter of solving the problem than uh, than casting blame on on those that don't go along with the uh, the thinking. <clears throat> so, uh, with all of the existential threats that you've looked at in your doomsday book, um, what is the most um, uh, most critical one right now? And and um, what's what's the one that we relate to the best? If you look across uh, the 25 chapters, about a quarter of them have to do with climate change. Okay. And, and that's super, like on one level, super simple. We're pouring gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. The parts per million of carbon dioxide is rising and rising and rising up to 420 parts per million last week. And, and we could solve that. You know, we could stop burning fossil fuels and we could start sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sequestering it. We, we have the technologies for both. We know it's an existential threat. We know that it's going to cost us trillions of dollars, like uh, unimaginable amounts of money if we don't get this problem under control and start reversing it to get, you know, ideally we'd get parts per million down to 300 uh, in our, in our dream world. Uh, and hopefully that would let us put the genie back in the bottle, but we don't know that that's necessarily true. We don't know if we haven't started a set of positive feedback loops that we can't imagine undoing probably we can undo them but we can't we don't really know what we don't know yet right, right. so so, yeah, so, it, so we know what the problem is we have a simple solution but we can't get all of us to align and i hear what you're saying about naysayers and there were naysayers about the moon stuff like why are we spending money an enormous amount of money and brain power and capital to go to the moon when we have all these problems on earth that was a common thing but they were so drowned out by everybody else who wanted us to land on the moon that their voices didn't matter you know they like they just became irrelevant because they were so small compared to the voice over here that said we have to land on the moon because of Sputnik. Like, that is right. so funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, part of it was Sputnik. Part of it was Kennedy's assassination. Part of it was patriotism. 
part of it was just we wanted our we want our team to win. Right. There were a number of things going on there psychologically. Yeah, but there's also lots of existential threats of the from the unknown. I mean, having a solar flare that flames up right. gives us another Carrington effect. Um, the um, uh, the idea of getting hit by an asteroid or um, there, well, the pandemic pretty much caught everybody off guard. Um, I mean, even though every futurist out there has uh, wild card scenarios about pandemics, nobody nobody could have could have predicted the timing and the um, uh, the set of circumstances that went along with it. Uh, all of these things are uh, a lot of variables, and and then just uh, the the economic collapse of stuff that. Um, when when the next downturn is going to hit and how hard and what's going to uh, trigger that, um, yeah, we, we we've got uh, we we've always got fun times ahead, and so <laughs> <laughs> many of them unpredictable, like you're mentioning. Yeah, and and this is where we get to some of the questions I would like to ask, you know, which is if we go and look at the Da Vinci Institute, you know. Part of your mission is to help people understand the future and how it's unfolding. And, you know, from a, a corporate level, how do you plan against some of this stuff? Like there were a couple of corporations that had pandemic insurance, uh, amazingly, huh. and they did great when the pandemic hit because their insurance paid out. That's fantastic. But yeah. only a couple did that. So... Like, how do y'all look at the future and and help people with those kind of analyses? Yeah, that's a, that's a great lead in because we're actually working on this, uh, creating a course called Future Like a Boss. And we're, <laughs> we're, 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 we're going to teach these techniques on how to how to actually read the signs of the future and actually understand um, a lot of what's what's happening. I mean the excellent. Um, the the best part about the future is that it's unknowable. Um, I mean, if if we actually knew everything that was going to happen, then we we wouldn't have any initiative to do anything. Right. And so we 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 have to have an unknowable future. But to the degree that we can get better at reading the signs, reading the signals, all of the um, there there's lots of. Uh, there's lots of clear signs of what's what's going to be happening and we can um we can read those and if we can get even one percent better at reading the future i mean that's it gives us a huge advantage see see i can i can actually predict lots of things with a high degree of probability i can predict that the earth is going to travel around the sun in roughly the same orbit a hundred years from now uh, I can predict that with a high degree of probability. 50 years from now, we're still going to have the seasons, the summer, winter, spring, and fall. Uh, you put a handful of seeds in the ground that a certain percentage are going to grow, and, and the tides are going to raise and lower like they are right now. And, and we can pre predict all these things with a high degree of probability. In fact, we can even plan a birthday party two weeks from now, and we have enough stable elements and things around us so that we know that we can pull it off. We have enough assurance that we can pull that off. But um, uh, so so we have um, the most of the world is set around these uh, elements that are slow, stable, slow moving uh, events and pieces. And then we can predict all these things with a high degree of probability. The, the biggest variables are the the, the animals, the, the people and the weather. And to the degree that we can get better at predicting them, then that gives us the advantage. Right. Well, you mentioned the Carrington style event, which is just <laughs> hanging out there. It's yeah. nearly certain to happen. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, there's solar flares and sunspots and all that all the all the time. Yeah. And it's just when is one aimed and timed correctly so that it blasts the face of the earth that happens to be, you know, pointing at the sun at the time. And that side of the planet has a bad 
<laughs> a bad situation. Yeah, and but have we, have we created a durable enough society to survive that? No. Right. And we have not. And, and, and so now what? Yeah. Well, so, so I, I think there's a lot that we could do to hedge against some of those uncertainties. Like one, one of the things that I've, the projects that I've kind of been coming back to when this quantum computing startup accelerator makes me a, a billionaire is, is what I call <laughs> Starshield. Uh, I'd like to develop some better way of, of monitoring heavenly objects and plotting their courses so that we're never surprised by a near miss, an asteroid that comes within, you know, whatever it is, 250,000 miles of Earth. Right. And that, you know, if it does, we have some plausible way of, of dealing with it in time. And I'm really encouraged by, you know, visionaries like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who are thinking about how to make humans a multiplanetary species so that if, should something horrible befall this planet, we won't all be wiped out altogether. And I think that inculcating more of that spirit mm -hmm. is one of the higher leverage pressures you can put on making us more durable. Nice. So the, the Carrington event kind of thing, you're right that we haven't built the resilience into the, into our networks, most importantly, the power grid, but also communications. But we know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and Texas is kind of the glowing example of this, where uh, they could have built a system that didn't collapse like it did. I guess that was in January is, is that or February. Oh, yeah. yeah. When that happened, right? So they... They built a system that was not ready for a weather event that was pretty easy to predict. And, yeah. and then the whole thing collapsed on them and caused misery and death and economic you know, ramifications and all that stuff when they could have completely prevented that. I mean, it's not like they don't have... Uh, electricity in the winter in Nome, Alaska. No, like we know how to harden systems against weather events. That's not even magic, you know, or rare. So how do we, how would we have encouraged people in Texas to not walk into the fan like they did? I, yeah, great, great question. Yeah, I, I don't know that we're going to resolve that in this one-hour podcast, <laughs> but it, in in the time remaining, uh, I, I wanted to counterbalance the forty or so minutes of talking about the collapse of civilization by asking you a hopeful question, so that we can hopefully okay. end on that note. Uh, what what is it that makes you optimistic about the future? What what gets you up and and gets you going every day? My job working with uh, optimistic, creative students in a university environment that makes me hopeful. Like the, the young people I interact with today are so bright and so worldly compared to my, you know, where I was when I was a teenager. I, it's, it's enormously uh, exciting to see how advanced they are because, you know, they've, They've got access to all the world's knowledge, right? Right, and, and in the ideal case, they're accessing it and making good use of it. In a lot of cases, not you know, obviously, not everyone is doing that. But at the university level, there is a remarkable amount of uh, hope generated by the young people that I'm working with on a, on a daily basis. So there's that. And then there are these occasional moments where you see humans coming together and actually making worthwhile things happen or where political will comes together. And it, it, uh, there are enough examples of things going in the right direction that we have some some reason to hope that all of that we can get enough mass going for example to start to address climate change at a global level i so one I, thing i've been speculating on is the 
the idea that because of COVID, a lot of countries are going to spend heavily on mega projects to get people reemployed. Uh, large overarching projects, and whether they're infrastructure projects or whether they're uh, uh, space hotels or space tourism, or whether it's sending a probe to the center of the earth or uh, looking at some other major big projects, uh, just building a bridge across the Bering Strait. Um, these, these are things that would employ tons and tons of people for a long period of time. And um, it would also be symbolic of, of taking on something that's bigger than yourself, something that's a cause that's bigger and more important than anything in the past. Um, that, that it seems like this is the right time to, uh, to launch a project like that, because we're looking for ways to get people re-engaged in the world. And as we've, we've gone through COVID, we've all sat around thinking, is this really where I wanted to be in life? Is this, what, what, do I have enough, uh, motivation, enough purpose in my life? Um, and we're look, we're looking for a lot of other things. So, uh, I think this is a good time. That is a great point because it does seem like in the past there was a lot more hope going on than than despair. And, you know, like if you go back to when, say, the Hoover Dam was built, it was amazing and it was gigantic and it had all this technology that made it possible and it was done by real people working in in uh, a big project that still stands today. And then, you know, that was one out of a thousand projects that, that were happening and they all together created this kind of hope idea. The, the moon stuff was all mixed in with that because every day something new and cool was happening that the nation could celebrate in some way. So you're right. If you could get that kind of positive momentum going to counteract the the, the depressing parts of the pandemic and climate change and, and yeah. start to move the needle on the positive side, that's an excellent suggestion. Yeah, yeah. I, I too welcome the the rebirth of that majestic sense of spirit. Yeah. All right. Well. There you have it, everybody. Some reasons for optimism and hope. And Marshall, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I am so grateful to y'all. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I'm glad we were, we've been able to spend this time together today. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Marshall. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.